go to thecognitiverampage.com. Keep fueling the change. Help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support. Love you. The Cognitive Rampage, a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization, is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. I may not be saying that for a while. Maybe I'll say it when I'm alone or talking to some friends or something or anytime I want to have some nostalgia and reach backwards, I uh, may do that because I do like to say that you can look back, but you don't have to go back. In this podcast, I'm going to do a lot of looking back, but uh, more than likely, I'm not going to go back. So bear with me on this podcast. I got my notes on this one, so don't be so much uh, squirreling off. There's some points that I really want to get to and talk about. I guess I don't have to waste any time, and I can jump right in and go to work, I guess, right? I tell you, when I put on the headphones, I feel at home, play the music that I like to play before I get going. Tonight, I was playing my old Haystack. Shout out to you, Haystack. I tried to get you on this show for a long time before I uh, turned it off. You uh, fed me a lot in my life with those words, and I like to play those songs because it reminds me of why I started this podcast, why I wrote this book, why I did it, and the people I did it for. So I appreciate all that uh, music stack. Definitely uh, added to my life as I uh, grew older. But uh, as you would say, uh, let's ride. <laughs> When I started this podcast back in 2013, it was quite minimal. I didn't know much about podcasts. I didn't know much about any of it, really. And, you know, my good, good friend, and well, he's like a brother to me, Sean, Mr. Sean Zernis. He's actually just left here. He'd been here for the weekend with him and his wife, Ashley. And, you know, he hit me up at about 2012 or so and introduced me to uh, a podcast called the Joe Rogan Experience Podcast. That was back in uh, 2013 when he did that. And again, I knew nothing of podcasts, so I appreciate you, Sean, walking me in there. And so when I found that you could create these things and go live, I was in the middle of 
treating people that were dealing with addiction. And uh, I was working inside what are called dual diagnosis facilities, people that deal with mental health disorders on top of addiction. And let me just say, uh, the trenches uh, would be a kind way to explain what it's like working in addiction facilities, much less being in an addiction facility. So a big shout out and love to all those that continue to work in the trenches and those that visit the trenches to try to get themselves better. So as I was in the middle of working on that, I got to tell you, I, I came in all bright eyed and bushy tailed, ready to save the world. I got back from my walkabout and was trying to fix my own life and had done that and got to a beautiful place. And well, then I walked those ugly places and I was upset. I was upset and disheartened because I thought I was getting into a field that was full of people that wanted to help and, well, a system in the United States that I thought was going to bring a lot of help for people. Now, I found out differently. So the mission of this podcast, it was funny, I you all remember an old thing, maybe it was called Ustream. As I was doing some Ustreaming, if you, want, if you will, and I was doing it out of uh, my mentor, Leo Danaball's private practice office at night. So I would work all day, overwork you as they do, and then I'd find my way to that office, and I'd pop up the laptop, and I would give lessons, and I would talk about uh, basically what I was talking about in my group therapy with my patients. And I was giving lessons and talking about uh, direct things, tools, strategies, things you could apply in your life. And I was also outing the system, if you will, and talking to people about what it really was. Now, fast forward a few years, and by some odd miracle, I had found myself out in L.A. in 2015. And long story short, I was in a comedy club. I had been listening to Joe Rogan for about, uh, I don't know, what it was, 2012 or so. So about three years I'd been listening to the man. And um, I listened to him every day, and I was uh, in, engulfed in that podcast for a while. And who would have thought... Uh, that I got up out of my chair in that comedy club and I walked to the back and I went and said hello to Mr. Rogan uh, and began to explain about a system, a mental health system, an addiction treatment system uh, that, mind you, Rogan knew nothing of and was telling him how people were treated and proceeded to invite me on the podcast. As I know this may be redundant for people that are listening, but it's part of the story. So floored as I got the invite. <laughs> I walked out front like, oh, how did that happen? Oh, oh my God, right? Um, for those of you that, that uh, don't know, when uh, I got outside of that comedy club, I was so excited. I ran two laps around the improv that evening, uh, excited the fact that I was going to be on Joe Rogan the next day. Had to change some flights, woke up that morning to a message from Joe that uh, he, he needed to reschedule the podcast. And I thought, wow, okay. We'll let it be, but a couple emails back and forth, and it was, can you be here at three? So I did. Now, mind you, this was the first time I'd ever done a podcast, because what I was doing on Ustream was not a podcast. It was uh, me standing in front of a, a camera on my laptop uh, with terrible sound, trying to convey mental health lessons uh, to all of my four viewers, if you will. Um, I remember moving to like six and I would be excited. Uh, so 
cut me some slack is what I'm asking for for my appearance on JRE. Um, I walked in and essentially that was my first podcast. My first time ever being on the microphone was uh, on the JRE experience, or the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And I have what I call a reference now podcast remorse. I said some things on that podcast in jest and in humor. Uh, and well, some things I probably shouldn't have said. I was a very general, uh, referred to people in addiction facilities as being tra- treated like Ritz Carlton patients. And that's not what I meant. Uh, I, I meant that they basically got whatever they wanted, despite what uh, therapeutic or uh, their therapist thought would be good. So it is a corrupt system that's corrupt on both sides from those that know how to run the system from within and those that are in the system helping those trapped within that system. And I went off on that podcast, as you could say, I went off uh, pretty wildly. And uh, I do have some regrets for those things, as I also do have some regrets uh, on the Cognitive Rampage podcast and some directions that I took and some things that I said. And I'll get to that in a little while. But anyway, I proceeded to do that podcast and got off of it and had a pool game with Mr. Rogan, and I'll leave those details out of what transpired between uh, Joe and I during that pool game. Uh, but I can tell you that my uh, my idol, if you will, um, turned out not to be the person I thought he was, and it quite crushed me, to be honest. Um, it hurt. <laughs> I actually didn't listen to his podcast for about three months after I got off of it. Uh, but I was excited, though, and it was kind of him to present that opportunity. So the silver lining there is that he did present that opportunity. And I appreciate you, Joe, for taking that chance on a unknown guy that you met randomly, uh, at your comedy club. And I appreciate that to a point. After that appearance on that show, my life took a serious turn. Uh, when I came off of that podcast, I was fired from both of my therapist jobs, uh, before I even left LA. Uh, essentially became blackballed, if you will, because any time I tried to become a therapist somewhere, somebody would uh, search my name and the Joe Rogan podcast would uh, make itself known. And a lot of those generalizations that I was making and frankly, uh, a lot of the facts that I was saying as well uh, were quite harsh. And obviously, no one's going to hire a therapist that may uh, out some injustices that were happening. But for me, Starting that podcast back in, or that Ustream back in 2013 was fairly simple of why I did that. People were dying. People were dying and they thought they were coming to get help. And frankly, I saw that we could provide a lot more help than what we were doing. But in my moment, if you will, on JRE, I proceeded to uh, talk down and downplay AA and NA and point out all the wrong things about it and went with this shock and awe approach that sort of stayed part of the cognitive rampage approach, if you will. And at the time, I was also writing the book because I did not want to be someone that just spout off everything that was wrong with a system and not at least be able to provide a solution. But on that appearance, I was spouting off a lot of things rather general and, well, not sticking to my own philosophy of things that I would say that if somersaults work for you, then do that. If AA works for you, then please, by all means, do that. 
The issue that I had was the fact it was simply the only offered help within these addiction facilities, these government-funded addiction facilities now. And well, I was pissed off. Hence the name Cognitive Rampage, a thinking rampage. And it was hard because at the time I had just started a family, got married, etc. And well, you do what you got to do, right? You tough it out and you just go to work and you play ball, and make sure you don't get fired. Well, for some odd reason, I just couldn't stand by as people were dying and nobody was saying a fucking thing. Now, my shout out does go to Dr. Stanton Peel, who's been on the podcast multiple times. Uh, and somebody that has been saying things like this for a very long time. And I wasn't the first, if you will, but the first to be on something like uh, Joe Rogan experience saying something like that. And that, come to, that came to bite me in the ass later. It did. Uh, but I didn't stick to my philosophy that day and talking about do what works for you. I was truly just upset that all we had for them were pills on top of pills and uh, harm reduction therapy, as they called it, and I downplayed things like Suboxone and other things. And the truth is, sometimes those things do save lives. Sometimes they do help people. Antidepressants do the same thing. They do help some people, as well as opiates as well. People need them. Some people have things you can't just cure or get rid of by doing just a little this or even a lot of this or that. And as I spoke those generalities, um, the guilt built up in me as time went on. And uh, recently I did a podcast talking about it, but needless to say, I could not hold my tongue. I could not go quietly into the night as I saw, well, nearly half of my first therapy list or my clients or patients that I had when I first started as a therapist return within the year. And no one seemed to care nor were we, were we trying to change the approaches. We weren't offering anything else. It was simply just the cut and dry bread and butter of the typical things of AA, NA, uh, as an approach to heal yourself. And I thought with all the science out there and all the research, we should be offering everything. And I meant everything. I meant psychedelics. Uh, I meant uh, ecstasy. I meant marijuana. I thought, heck, if we're giving out opiates and narcotics like the M&Ms, <laughs> We might as well be passing out psilocybin and cannabis the same. And science is getting there. It's starting to get there and they're seeing those things. I ended up losing a lot more than those two jobs over the next few years. I battened down the hatches and wrote that book. I felt I needed to get that book out there, whether it was for myself or anything else. But I thought if one person dealing with addiction sitting in that dark place, ready to walk away from their life, if they maybe could read that and it helped them, well, then it'd be worth sacrificing what I was sacrificing. Now, at the time, I didn't know what I was sacrificing when I went down that road, but frankly, it was my mission, and it felt like it wasn't my choice. It felt like, wow, a random guy gets put on Rogan to say something like that. Maybe there's something bigger at play here. And so I followed it. And I followed it relentlessly. And I left a lot of bodies in the wake, if you will, doing so. And it's been a long ride up to 2018. So from 2013 on Ustream to the first airing of the podcast in August 2015, 
when it was up and running. A big shout out to Steve Stone. I love you, brother. He was along the whole way, man. I was talking to Steve uh, when I was sitting on a rooftop in L.A. Uh, about 18 hours before I had to go on the show. And we had no website. I had nothing, nothing to sell. There was nothing there. Uh, and Steve did the best he could to get something up overnight before we got up there. Uh, <laughs> and he did that for me. And he's done a lot more over the years. Uh, for the Cognitive Rampage, as well as the Tribe of Change. So I love you, Steve, and it's been a fun ride with your brother. So as I continued after Rogan saying the things I said, my life changed. I began to share my experiences, my personal experiences. I opened myself up rather transparently. Uh, I took a lot of flack for that along the way. Uh, from all sides in my life, to be honest, and wanted to keep going. And I felt like no matter what, I had the podcast. I had you all. I had the listeners and I had the tribe of change that I created uh, many years ago. Three, four years ago, I think uh, the tribe was one of the first groups we created after those podcasts. But that mission stuck with me. It rang in my head, remembered my dark places and those wonderful souls that I met, and sometimes a lot of those hurt and darkened souls that I had met through addiction treatment, and I remembered them. I remembered some that passed, some that came to treatment, left, and never came back. The few that got healed and changed their lives, I remember them. William Lord, shout out to you, brother. You stick uh, out in my mind, and you've been upfront about and open. That's why I mentioned your name here, because you don't hide that. Uh, and you, were <laughs> you actually have a deep memory in my life, brother. Um, I remember you as an intern, and then I remember you as one of my first patients. And uh, as you messaged me the other day, you're still sober, and you're still doing it. And I'm proud of you for that, brother. But those that didn't, those I couldn't help, well, they came to me in my nightmares because I had those for many, many years, and they stayed with me in my life, and I thought about them a lot. I thought about those that if I just maybe had one more week with them, maybe if I had paid a little more attention, maybe if I gave them that one more tool or strategy, they, they would have made it, and I wore a lot of their pain. I took it home with me, if you will. I didn't let things flow around me as my mentor Leo urged me to do daily. I let it flow through me, and I wore that weight heavily. And a lot of times I still do. But I got so wrapped in the podcast world of what you're supposed to say, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to monetize, create things and make money, and I just couldn't do it because that was not part of the mission. This tribe is free and will remain free as long as I'm running the thing. So many people were coming into my life telling me how I'm supposed to run the podcast, how I should be making money off all you listeners and all of you that share this and those of you in the tribe. And I paid no attention because that's not what it was about for me. It was about trying to save lives, even my own. But I got so far in it, I felt the pressures financially. I felt the pressures to have to perform. And how much time I had put into something like the book and the podcast to where stopping and turning around was just not an option. It would have felt like failure. 
So I got caught in the shock and awe of what was happening. I would say things for shock and awe. I was attacking certain speakers and lecturers and talkers and pseudoscience and other things because it became trendy to do so. I used to get upset when I'd hear people like Dr. Rhonda Patrick go on to Joe Rogan and say the exact same things I was saying, but yet I was getting no love back. I was covered in vanity and guilt and, well, hey, I said it first. And for me, that means I lost sight of my mission when the mission was to get out there what was happening so people would know. All the way from the misconceptions of mental health diagnosis, diagnoses, or how they're treated, and especially how addiction treatment, well, wasn't helping much. And the shock and all led me down some roads of the podcast and to say some things, and I ended up creating a hashtag called Chemical Incarceration. That's what I called it on JRE as well, because at the time, working inside that, all I saw was chemical incarceration. I saw that people were being incarcerated not only with the drugs they were choosing in the street, but incarcerated with the drugs they were being, being given within the addiction facilities. It seemed like we trade one drug for another, and it certainly still seems like that today. And yes, there are doctors that overprescribe. There are facilities that only aim to see people as insurance money to be paid. And I didn't talk much about the other side until much later in this podcast. I talked a lot about the opioid epidemic that people talk about when really it should have been the overprescribing epidemic that was happening. But I can also tell you this. Until you're in a place to where you feel like you have nothing to reach for and you're willing to try anything because you just want to save your life, a lot of times people need those pills and they can use them properly. They can be titrated off of them. They can be applied. Now, mind you, if you applied every other method possible and there's diagnoses, medical and mental, that, well, a lot of times just can't be treated and can only be maintained but I took the shock and awe approach and I attacked every angle because I was upset. And I lost sight of the vision of just getting out there what was happening, but also what I had learned and what I really knew, that AA had worked for some people and continues to, and rather that hits somebody other, someone else's cognitive dissonance about what they see as being life or cult life or any other uh, reference to this treatment or this uh, help. It does, and it did. And now I do have those regrets about how much I added to this quotations opiate epidemic rather than the overprescribing epidemic and, well, the fact that the society itself has some serious issues and it's hard enough just to try to cope within those confines, much less the confines within addiction facilities. And the shock and all seemed to match the brand of Cognitive Rampage and how I would deliver my messages. So I rolled with it. Many times getting further and so further from the mission that I even forgot why I was even doing the podcast. Other than, I just have to do a podcast. But the way I see it, is you can fight the world, but I can tell you the world will eventually win. You have to fight the world, if you will, with groups, 
in communities. Love, action, vigor, relentless, relentlessness, and more. And a lot of times I felt like I was fighting the world and I would have given up probably a long time ago had it not been for the later in my life support of Patricia and especially the support of the Tribe of Change. You all have been there. I could share and be vulnerable with all of you. Many of you, we've shared personal conversations and personal messages back and forth. And I remember every one of them. And there's those that I couldn't get to. Those that I felt I couldn't give them enough time for what they were dealing with to even engage with them. Because that would have been unfair and possibly hurtful. And I wore that guilt as well. And the guilt built up over years of not being able to help everyone. Being able to reach out to everyone requested it or asked for it. And as well as the other regrets I mentioned earlier maybe causing some issues for those that really need those pills. There was a woman here that was diagnosed with something terminal. And before that time came, she was living in extreme pain. And I heard her in line at the pharmacy and they refused to give her or, or they refused, excuse me, they refused to give her her opiates or her narcotics. She literally went and got Channel 2 News and showed up with them and she got her medicine. That woman died three months later. And as I overheard that, I thought to myself, did I add to that? Was I hashtagging chemical incarceration that were actually, well, hurting people that needed it? And that sunk deep into my soul. That carried me. It carried with me. It stayed with me, you know. I found later in my life that guilt weighs into a lot of my issues too where I feel bad or anxious or anything like that. And as these years piled up, so did the guilt from some things I said out of the side of my mouth or for shock and awe and some things that may have even hindered people's progress on their own or even the progress of mental health itself. But the way I see it, the mission was to get out there what was happening not necessarily to change it. One man can't change the giant insurance industry and the privatized addiction treatment facilities that make billions of dollars every year off of people's lives. But I thought I could. <laughs> at, least, uh, at least I'd make a dent. In five years of doing this, well, I'd like to say that at least the stories of what was happening and how people were hurting as they came for help has gotten out there and the corrupt avenues that do exist in the addiction and the mental health world are slowly being exposed. One of the only few shows that I watch when I watch that big giant blue screen is last weekend tonight with John Oliver. Now I know it's a lefty show and it's far left but when you know what you're watching, you can filter those things. But very recently, actually, they did a show on addiction treatment, and they focused on the state of Florida. My first response was one of, I told you, I knew it. I've been saying it forever. Hell, I even tweeted at Joe. Hey, Joe, you up for round two now that it's uh, affirmed and, uh, you know, 
John Oliver and the writers at uh, The Tonight Show are talking about it. And now your guests you brought on multiple times that have backed me up in everything I've been saying without one reference. Uh, you see how I slow down there? Bitter quite? Yeah, I was bitter much. But then I had to stop myself and I backed up and I said, wait, it's out there. People are learning. They're hearing it now. They understand. They know there's more avenues. They know to maybe hold off on the narcotics until they try numerous other things, be that physical or cognitive or even social. Brilliant minds like Dr. Gabor Mate were saying things about social connection linking to trauma and addiction. And a lot of professionals just weren't listening because, well, it sounded too simple a fix for what seems so complex to millions of people across this country. And I can tell you now, from my experience and my opinion, Dr. Gabor Mate and some of these others that have talked about social connection and trauma are on point. That maybe we should start looking elsewhere other than just pills that affect the brain in places we hope or theoretically should or should not do this or that. And that to me also fed my mission, if you will, that had given convoluted. My admission had slowly turned to let's see how many addiction facilities we could shut down. It got wrapped in vanity. It got wrapped in bitterness. And I had forgot the mission of just letting people be informed, informed of what you were signing up for with addiction treatment, informed of what you were really doing with interventions. And it fit my narrative. So I continue to say it. And like I said, along the way, I wore some guilt. But for me, I'd love to say mission accomplished. I'd love to say that and pull a George Bush and a Donald Dump and say, hey, mission accomplished. I wish it felt that way, y'all. It feels that way a little bit, that it's out there that people know, that at least you're not just walking into facilities for help blindly, that there are people out there talking about it now, people with much larger audiences than mine, people with much larger voices and more degrees that are well beyond my competence beginning to say these things now. And well, for me, that is a little mission accomplished that people know now. But as these five years have transpired, it has seriously consumed my life. Writing that book, I jokingly say, was like having a lobotomy. I've said it a few times as I buried myself in the cognitive cave, as I referred to it as the podcast studio, and I wrote for hours on end. I put the first book out in nine months, and frankly, it was a C- minus at best. I had written it hastily for certain reasons in my life and pressures that I was receiving that I needed to, well, get it done. And I sat in a back room with red lights and salt rocks and the Emancipator Station playing on Pandora in my ear. And I'd sit up and I'd wait till my daughter went to bed around 9 or 10 o'clock, depending on what day it was or how old she was. Because <clears throat> I wrote two of them. <laughs> but they'd, and she'd go to bed and I'd find myself in that room and I'd lock the door and I would go inside my own mind and I would type, vigorously type, for hours and hours, taking breaks, 
coming back. Because for me, this book was not just simply a stream of consciousness to be written. I needed to provide tools, methods, strategies, not just motivation and inspiration, because anybody can feed you inspiration and motivation. I wanted to give tools. I wanted to give scientific tools, things that you could really apply. A four-pronged approach, if you will. A cognitive, a behavioral, a social, a biological. I needed to include all of these sciences in the solution because while I believe it takes an integrative approach to solve an integrative problem. And I wrote like that for nine months. And I put that first book out. If any of you have the copy of the first edition, which you can't buy anymore, much love to you. You've been around from the beginning. And I appreciate you listening even now if you do. But that book wasn't it. I knew it wasn't it. Didn't feel right. Had terrible editing. Misspellings. It was wrong. But I kicked it out in a hurry. But I knew it could help someone because writing that book helped me. And there were times where I didn't want to write. There were times I wanted to quit, hang it up. Maybe I could lie on an application and maybe they wouldn't Google me and maybe I'd actually get hired somewhere as a counselor. I tried that route too, to no avail. So back at it, I went. More loudly than ever on the podcast, I'd be hyped up, getting ready, and I'd deliver my cognitive rampage, I guess, as my brand was supposed to do. I became consumed with the image of the brand and lost the mission. But as I immediately began to work on the second edition of that book, immediately, I was remembering my mission. People were dying. There were people out there in dark places, contemplating whether they actually wanted to breathe another breath. And I thought about those people, and I thought about when I was there in my life, when I had contemplated those terrible things multiple times. And so I wrote more and further. And I used those applied sciences. I developed things like rational self-analysis and the four-step process to be able to do that. This is how we excavated your cognitive and or your thinking. I'm trying not to use, uh, I don't know, that, that jargon, but it was for to help people learn how to rethink how they thought because what you think is different from how you think. And I needed to explain that. And I needed to explain the scientific backing of how what you think manifests from how you think in the story that you tell about your life. Trying to convince people there was no truth, well, that was a little difficult, but that was the attempt. You know, a lot of people read the book, but... It's rare that I've met somebody that actually did the book. Because the book is not just a read. It's an application. It's an application of a theory that I came up with, if you will. Transrational structure behavior theory. Whatever that means. I could tell you what it means, but you know. But I haven't met many that actually did the work. They read through it, but they didn't apply it. 
part two that you learn in that book is, well, how to build your own life philosophy, how to make better choices that are in line with what you believe after you've already excavated the irrational and negative beliefs using rational self-analysis. At the end of this book, you actually have a 15-sentence philosophy written out in front of you. I used to jokingly say that people don't even know what their philosophy is if you ask them. And please don't regurgitate that same quote or meme that you like the readers hanging on your refrigerator because that's not yours. So the book also helped people learn how to change how they made decisions. Not just Tinker taught you about finding the brighter side or talking about it more positively. I needed science to back this up. So RSA and life philosophy and the certain principles to keep it simple. And then lastly, the tool of the inventory, the personal inventory that, well, takes the social approach and builds a social connection approach while also getting you more active, etc. This was my solution because I just didn't want to be someone that was bitching. And after that second lobotomy of putting out that second edition, I thought, oh, there it is. I can rest now. And I tried to. And I enjoyed the company, as I still do, of what I call my rose in the desert, Patricia. And I tried to rest, and I couldn't. At that very same time of my life, when I thought I could rest, when about that book was a few months from being out, what I thought at the time my whole life had been destructed and destroyed and uprooted. And I found myself wandering the country once again, just like I had done two years before I came back and became a counselor. And during that time, it's quite odd how, well, I forgot to apply my own rules to myself, my own tools and my own strategies. And you've probably heard me say it before. But again, this is the last podcast on the Cognitive Rampage, so I got to say it again, as Leo would tell me, with all things cool, calm, and benign, I'll solve anyone's problem unless it's mine. And I stopped taking care of myself when I thought I could rest. And there were some new people coming into my life. I'd already mentioned Patricia. Alex Price became a good part of my life. Somebody I talked to in the mornings. Alvin, shout out to you. I'm probably missing some of you. And some of those that have been in my life for a long time were starting to come back around in my life. People I had forgotten or neglected in my lobotomies, <laughs> a.k.a. the book writing. But yet my life had uh, once again hit a spin that I didn't see coming. So the time of rest could not be that. I dove deeper into the podcast. I interviewed some great minds and some wonderful people that shared their stories, shared their competence and their experiences. You see, I got to a point then to where I was tired of interviewing who everybody else was interviewing. I had a few of those. And they'd come on the podcast and tell the same shock and all stories that they were telling on, well, 80 other podcasts. So I started looking for those that well, had a different story or maybe weren't as well known because I truthfully wanted to give those people the same opportunity that I had when I was put on JRE because that was a cool thing he did. And I remember how I felt when I did it. 
And so for me, I would encourage my friends and those around me, come on the podcast, come on, it'll be great. Or those that would write in that maybe had a hundred followers or something like that. I didn't care. They were brave enough, had the courage to reach out and ask. And it would, it would be funny sometimes that somebody would message my tiny little podcast and act like, Hey man, <laughs> my dream was to be on your podcast. And I laughed to myself and I'd email them back right away and go, Hey, let's do it next week. And a lot of times they'd go, Oh, Oh, oh never mind. I'm not ready. You know, but I wanted to give that same moment, that same feeling to other people, let them tell their story because that story, whether they thought it or not, I knew would help someone, maybe not some two, three or four hundreds, but maybe it would, but I knew at least that story would help someone and it helped me. I learned so much from so many amazing people on this podcast. I cannot tell you, I cannot even begin to explain. It fueled me. It kept me going. It kept me alive. As I slowly began to get my feet back underneath me, I started wondering what was next. Now, along the way, I had hypothesized back in 2013 an idea of something I was calling athlete's depression. Well, as this mission, if you will, I love to say is accomplished, that it's out there. And like I said before, shows with much larger audience than mine, with extremely more intelligent, more competent hosts than myself, are beginning to talk about it. And I think I do, it's time now to do that Homer Simpson meme, where I just kind of disappear back into the woods, at least on this side. But for those of you that listen or watch the Cognitive Rampage or have followed it from day one or earlier or later since last week. If battling mental health or addiction or these things is what is still in your life and still consumes you or is still part of, well, the fight in your life, I have a plan for you too. I have one more interview that's going to be on this podcast, which is why I said this is the last solo cognitive rampage that I'll be doing. That interview is coming up June 16th. It's not some massive big name. So forgive the silent buildup as if I'm going to drop some giant name that's going to come on here and save the world. It's actually a gentleman I've been on his podcast before, and it's not JRE. But it's a young man that I've watched for a while, not in some creepy stalker way, okay? But I've watched grow his show and his passion and the people that he talks to. And I told him it's time to pass that torch to him. So after he comes on the podcast, we'll talk more about why, and you'll see why I'm passing that torch to him to continue to help those with addiction. Because the original mission of this podcast and writing my book were for those that were dealing with addiction. But when you talk to a marketer or a publisher and they tell you that, well, your book needs to appeal to a wider market, well, then you begin to not listen to yourself when you're trapped in the vanity, even financial pressures at times. Well, I got to open the book up to everybody. And I said it, that, and I still believe it today, that you don't have to be dealing with addiction or a mental health diagnosis. You could just enjoy 
self-exploration, hence the change of the title of the second edition, from a dose of authentic revelation in the first edition, to scientific application, or a scientific application of change life optimization and self-discovery. So I began to talk on podcasts about, well, if you're dealing with this diagnosis or that diagnosis, or if you're going through this or that or the other, this book is for you, that I would say. And the truth is that this book was written for those that are dealing with addiction, for those that are in that dark place, for those that feel there is no hope left, for those that just were ready to quit. That's why I did this. That is who the book is for because some of us that aren't in those dark places anymore well we can get by and there's podcasts and a million other great books that you can read but i felt like not too many people were writing to those that have been forgotten those that had been cast aside disowned by their families because they've been to rehab 58 times in the last 10 years those that had been given up on and those that had given up on themselves because I know what that place feels like. So truly, that's what the mission was for. And that's why these reins will be passed after that last interview next week. Because you still need something to hold on to. You still need the science to help you. But for me, The Cognitive Rampage is a portfolio and a journal of my life over those years. Things I know you experienced just like I did and do. As I transparently showed you everything about my life. My tears, my faults, my worries, my wonders, my errors, my observations of my own meandering in this wildly wonderful, amazing human experience. And I shared those with a passion. I shared them with no apologies. Some regrets for sure. But it certainly consumed me. But it's time for the next chapter. It's time for the new book. And I find it no coincidence that Mr. Nick Leonfelter <laughs> has just jumped in on this podcast. Someone I've invited to co-author my next book with me, Athlete's Depression. And it's time for that chapter. A new book. A new podcast. Athlete's Depression is something I've been pondering for a very, very long time even before I became a therapist. I wanted to specialize in treating athletes as a therapist directly. Because truthfully, I believed athletes to be a breed apart. And sometimes, to quote Last of the Mohicans, a breed, a breed apart that makes no sense. But I also knew a lot of athletes that suffered from something they couldn't understand. I also knew that Many athletes still today 
wonder why nothing seems like it helps. While general talk therapy and pills and other things that are the standard of treatment for mental health don't seem to help. And I hear you. And trust me, I feel you. And that's another dark place that many people may not know about unless you've been that athlete. When it's all over. And you no longer can define yourself by that position you play or that sport that you've participated in that once was your life. I hear you. And it's time you get some answers. And it's time that you get offered some help and some treatment that currently isn't really available. At least a method or approach, or as Joe Rogan jokingly said on his podcast to me, a new modality. It's time you all are heard because most of the time, athletes are ignored. They imagine us to be superheroes. We imagine ourselves to not need anyone else but ourselves. We were trained that way. We were gladiators birthed to go to war. And so when mental health attacks or life fights us, we know nothing better to do than to white knuckle and fight back and fight into overtime if that's necessary. So the new mission, the new podcast, will be called The Fight Life because we're all fighting for something in this life. And on this podcast that I start after the last interview of The Cognitive Rampage, I'm going to do small segments on there, and if you're a Tribe of Change member that's listening right now, and as everyone commented an awesome or cool or unique or funny name or something really good to call this next podcast. I had an epiphany. I thought, those are all really great names. So on this Fight Life podcast, as I interview athletes, talking to them about their life, about what their fight in life is for and about, I'm going to do small segments on this podcast that are going to be 10 minutes long, and I'm going to test myself. I'm going to test myself because like this podcast and many others, well, I can go on for a while, and I can scroll off with the best of them. So I'm going to test myself and put in the mental work myself pre-podcast, and I'm going to do small segments called Life Fights. And these are going to be small 10-minute segments where I'm going to give you direct tools and direct strategies that you can apply in your life and you don't have to be an athlete. We're going to put the mental work in. And I'm going to write this book differently. See, I wrote the last book with too much jargon. I created a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization including personality inventories, life philosophy worksheets, and rational self-analysis methods with principles of change to apply. Sure sounds good, doesn't it? But like I always say, it always sounds good. 
But this book, I'm going to take a journalistic approach. I'm going to walk into it open for discovery and learning from every athlete that I talk to. And as we discover and see what their lives are like and what they're fighting for in their lives. I may even have some people that are not athletes on that are seriously fighting for their life. I've always been drawn to people at the end of their lives. I've been drawn to our elders that are on their way out, if you will, as many of them have told me. And I ask them what their hints are for life, what their tips are for life. I shared a video of an amazing young woman just recently on the Cognitive Rampage Facebook page. She had about 18 months to live and she looked full of life. More brave than I've ever been and shown more courage than I've ever seen or even been able to muster myself. She was powerful. And so those people that are literally fighting for their lives. I'll probably interview those people as well because A, their story needs to be told. And if you're anything like me, you've imagined what it would be like if you knew how much time you actually had left and what it would do for you or to you. As I had a wonderful old man tell me once, diagnoses and death sentences, if you will, can do something to you or they can do something for you. And that's a hard mental change to make when something like that happens in your life. And I respect that. So we're going to have those guests eventually. But the mission here is athletes depression and to discover what that's like. Is it real? I certainly believe it is. And I'll use big words like the etiology and the manifestation of symptoms and certain things, sure, because I have to be taken serious by the intellectuals. But this is a journalistic approach. We're going to take this journey together on the Fight Life podcast. And it's important because people are dying. You may see a similar thread here in the mission that was the Cognitive Rampage's mission. As I started, as people were dying, people were staying sick, people were lost, sitting in black spaces. But remember this, darkness cannot penetrate light, but light can penetrate darkness. And perhaps the cognitive rampage in the portfolio that's been compiled over the last five years can shed some light in your darkness. I do know if you do read and apply that book that I wrote and put my heart and soul in, I know for a fact it will help your life and it will shine light into your dark place. I know that with all of my heart. So on this mission, I'd like you to follow this mission and listen and remind me in case I get off topic, in case I lose sight of the mission. I'd like the tribe of change to chime in and say, hey man, have you forgot? People are dying. 
And I'll need that motivation and that love to keep going, to keep writing and to keep pushing and to keep broadcasting, to keep interviewing. I'm going to need you for it. Just as much as I've needed you all these past five years or five weeks, however long you've been listening and or reading. I approach the end of this podcast here and kind of feels like I don't want to walk away from the microphone right now. Like I just kind of want to sit here with you. Sit in that comfortable silence, as Mia Wallace said once on Pulp Fiction. And perhaps maybe before I do get off this podcast, all of you listening, sitting here with me on a late night at 12.15 a.m. on a Sunday, will participate in something with me that, well, if you're an OG, you'll do something like us real OGs do. And we'll take a moment of silence for everybody that we've known that we've lost to addiction, to suicide, to mental health disorders and issues and problems to where they didn't seek help. Friends we knew, family members, our brothers and sisters. And I'm going to take silence as long as I feel is necessary, but perhaps all of us here live, doing it, hanging out, you'll do it with me. And remember those that we've lost to addiction. We love and miss you. And what we can do for those that we've lost is we can continue to fight for their life. And if you're in that dark place, please keep fighting for your life. This is your life fight, but you do not have to fight it alone. The tribe of change is here for you. And on my podcasts, this go-round, the best I'm going to be able to give you for direct help, because I have to take care of myself, are going to be that mental work, those small segments of 10 minutes where I'm going to give you tools and strategies directly to implement into your life fight. Because it may not feel like it now, but at the end of this, when the dust settles, you will be victorious. You will survive. You will live. I love you all very much. I cannot thank you enough. I cannot hug you enough. I can't tell you I love you enough. Because the cognitive rampage is all of you. It is not me. It's not that book. It's not just this podcast. It's all the ones we remembered that we've lost. And it's all of you. Every bit of you. I've read all of your comments. All of your messages. All of your inspiration. All of your keep pushings. 
all of your keep on rampagings. I read them every morning or every night or every afternoon and many times when I was in the dark place ready to give up. It was you that picked me up. Not me or my messages that helped you, but it was you that helped me fight for my life. It was you that helped me go this long and this far. You did that for me. And if anything I ever said registered or hit you, it wasn't me. I was simply reminding you of what you already knew. And if anything felt magical during this five-year journey on this podcast or felt like grace hitting you while you read that book or listened or even listen now, I firmly, honestly, believe that that was not me either. And I can't scientifically explain to you what that might be. But I promise you it wasn't me. I jokingly comment many times, as some have said before, well, you did the hard work. You listened. You applied. You took action. Without that, I'm just making noises. So thank you all that have continued to fight for your life. Thank you all that have picked me up after round 204. We're still fighting. And we're going to keep fighting together. I'll see you at the Fight Life Podcast. Where we all can gather. And continue our own life fights. I love you all very much. And last but not least, one more time, I hope you're taking care of you, and I hope you're living your cognitive rampage. <laughs>